Chapter 8 Jim slapped a big chunk of elk meat onto the spread-out hide and hawked off a slice for himself with his knife. He cut this into strips about one inch thick, scored them crisscross, and carried them over to the high willow sapling rack he built near the big oak tree. Squaw's work, he thought grumpily, as he added the elk strips to the venison already spread out on the rack. Meat making was not his favorite occupation. He'd done plenty of it, during the years with Tom when there was no squaw handy to do it for them. But he'd never quite got over the feeling that he was demeaning himself. The man hunted the meat and made his kills. Later, he ate all the jerky he wanted. But the chore that took place between times was none of his affair. Still, he reflected as he poked damp fir branches into the slow, smoky fire burning under the rack. It wasn't as bad as the sort of thing Johnny had been busy with ever since they found the claim a week ago. Swamp and brush, cleaning stray saplings out of the clearing, digging up stumps afterward. What did they want so much open space for? The cabin wasn't going to take up all that room. Jim saw no sense in bothering with a cabin anyway. Counting the new hides, they'd soon have enough to make a good snug teepee, and that force was full of lodge poles. But Johnny and Sally wouldn't think much of that idea. He grinned fleetingly at the notion of Sally keeping house in a crow lodge. No, it had to be a cabin. There was already a growing stack of logs yonder by the fir trees, and he could hear the clear whack, whack of Johnny's axe back in the woods. Trimming another. From the direction of the river came the sound of vigorous splashing and slapping and singing as Sally scrubbed the last grime of the trail out of the jeans and petticoats. Jim turned from the fire as Daniel emerged from the woods. Moki, almost invisible beneath a load of firewood, stalking sulkily at his side. Jim laughed aloud at the expression on the dog's face. That morning, to Daniel's fascinated delight, he had rigged a Trevar two poles harnessed to the dog's shoulders and lashed together at the far ends to the trail on the ground, forming a crude sled. And it was on this wood was piled. Moki hadn't suffered this indignity since he'd carried Red Deer's wood in Absaroka. And there was self-pity in every line of his body. Jim leaned against the meat rack, shaking with mirth. Why, ain't you mistreated? Moki whined piteously, making a terrific show of effort as he staggered forward, straining at his load. Jim only laughed harder, but Daniel looked worried. Honest, Jim, I'm scared I piled too much on him. I, I know you said he could pull a lot, but gee, look at the way he's walking. You reckon I've hurt him? He'll live, drawled Jim. He reached out and took a piece of elk off the meat rack, dropping it to the ground. The effect on Moki was instantaneous. He trotted forward as springingly as the pile of branches was, as, was like feathers, sank to the grass between his shafts, and began gnawing on the tidbit. Well, look at that, exclaimed Daniel in disgust. Here, I've been feeling sorry for him. He ain't nothing but an old faker. Jim chuckled, leaning over to loosen the dog's harness and drag the Trevor aside. Him and that cuss mule, they don't take to no more work than I do. He turned ruefully to spot the sheltered by the spreading branches of the big oak, where he had had a couple of hides pegged on the ground. More squaws work. But they were good hides, and he didn't trust these sloppy Multnomah Indians around here to do a decent job of tanning them. Want a chore? He asked Daniel. If it's your kind of chore, 
Jim grinned and pointed to the graining tool laying on the side of the ground, a curved bone in which an iron blade had been seated. See how that fits your fist. He walked to the oak tree and squatted by the nearest hide, looking at it critically. Then he pegged out the new elk skin beside it, hair side down, and set Daniel to work, happily scraping off all the old flesh and sinew. As Jim went back to his meat-making, he was again conscious of the sounds of bourgeois activity from all directions. There was a muffled crash from the woods that meant another tree was down. From the water's edge rose the sound of splashing paddles and voices shouting greetings. The Rutledges, to the twins and Sally's mutual delight, had settled directly across the river, and a day seldom passed without the scrape of a canoe prow or the bump of a log raft against the one bank or the other as the two families shuttled back and forth on neighborly errands. Jim's knife slashed irritably into the elk carcass. All this banging and whacking and chattering and coming and going, a man couldn't hear himself think. But Sally and Johnny thrived on this life. Both of them worked every day from sunrise to dark and never seemed to mind. They were bursting with plans. Any free moment Johnny had, he spent striding about the glades and along the creek, planting the cattle shed here, the first wheat field there. In the evenings, he sprawled beside the, super, the supper fire, ciphering in the dirt with a stick to find out how many bushels to the acre he'd have to get to pay their debt at the Hudson's Bay Post in Willamette Falls. Sally was the same, chattering vigorously, to anyone who would listen, of a future cozy with rose bushes, kitchen curtains, and quilted counterpanes. She dealt just vigorously. Meanwhile, with all the drudgeries of the present, scrubbing and mending and making candles and soap out of the byproducts of Jim's hunting, airing blankets, patching shirts, Jim marveled at her. Nothing daunted her. She'd put up with any hardship or tackle any chore so long as it had to do with making a home. And she still found energy for determined little attacks on the more uncivilized of Jim's ways, his erratic notions of when it was time to eat, his habit of cleaning his knife on his shirt front, his persistence in wearing at his belt the little horn of castorium which she made him a smell like a, a pack of wild, a passel of wild animals. She reminded Jim of a hummingbird, tiny, beautiful, fierce. He was just finishing with the elk when she appeared on the steep path from the river, lugging the big basket of wrung-out clothes. Even Jim, unaccustomed as he was to talking, to taking thought for any squaw, could see that it was too heavy for her. Somewhat sheepishly, he walked down and hoisted it on his shoulder, carrying it up the oak to the oak whose spreading branches she used for a clothesline. Well, thanks, she said in surprise. Then she flapped out a shirt and tossed it over a branch. Daniel, honey, did you catch any fish this morning? Too busy uh, toting wood, the boy answered, pointing to the travos. Then we'll eat the rest of the deer haunch. Run fetch it out of the wagon while I finish hanging these things. Then call Johnny. It's most noon. My stars, don't the days fly. Half an hour later, as the four of them sat together finishing the last of the cold haunch, Jim frowned and looked around to the east. In a moment he got up and walked to the edge of the clearing to stare downriver. 
What's wrong? Johnny asked him. Somebody's coming. Why, I don't hear nothing. Use your eyes, Johnny. That mule stopped chewing five minutes ago. Every head turned to bad medicine, who had been grazing up near the fir trees. He was standing motionless, his ears upright and every muscle quivering. Well, shucks, said Johnny. Who sits around watching a, a mule chew anyhow? He walked over to stand beside Jim, adding, You ain't serious. Sure I'm serious. Jim saw the mule's ears go down. White man, he told Johnny. And as he noticed birds spurting out of the thicket downstream, he heard a distant chattering of squirrels. Probably a wagon, too. Not more than half a mile away. Daniel dashed up to them. Say, look at how Moki's acting. I think he heard something, too. Did he describe it? inquired Jonathan dryly. According to the mule, it's a white man with a wagon. Even Jim had to grin. But he went back to his eating, unperturbed by Sally's giggling. I'll believe all that when I see it. Ten minutes later, a tall gray horse cantered into the clearing, bearing a big, tow-headed, square-shouldered boy with a sack of corn under his arm and an air of holiday-making. Fetch out that banjo, Johnny, he yelled. You're about to have a passel of company. Johnny let out a whoop and ran toward him, Sally and Daniel right behind him. Sam Mullins, by golly, that ain't holy. Ain't seen you since the Dows. How's your mother? Where's your claim at? Company, Sam. My stars. What company? Everybody you know. There's a wagon load right behind me. Daniel, how's the boy? Miss Sally, I got a little present for you. Just some old meal. But it'll fill these folks up. Don't you worry. They're bringing their own grub. Everybody talked at once as they pulled Sam off his tall gray and towed him across the grass. Johnny's face was flushed with delight. His arms swept this way and that as he showed off his property. Sam admired and commented and complained about the Oregon rain and his own poverty, luxuriously pulling his pockets inside out while Johnny flung back his dark head and roared with laughter. Man, you ain't the only one. Sis here, she's got patching down to a fine art. Sam, you gotta meet my brother Jim. Hey, Jim, shake hands with the best doggone coyote shooter and cattle doctor ever come out of Kentucky. Daniel, run fast and yell for the Rutledges to hustle on over here. Sis, you and me uh, better hunt something up for all them folks to set on. Jim shook hands, hearing the squeal of wagon wheels even as he did so. He liked Sam's looks and self-conscious grin, but found himself tongue-tied. Sam, too. Suddenly, he shifted his feet and darted glance at, it, at Jim's necklace, and a few moments later lopped off hastily as his trail-withered mother arrived with the Millses. Behind the Millses came the Howards, the Burks, the young Selways, all the others of the wagon train who had settled within a 20-mile radius of the Kias. Keith's to Jim. <clears throat> to Jim, it seemed the whole world was suddenly converging on the clearing. But Johnny and Sally were in their element, pumping hands and shouting delighted greetings, dragging out crates and boxes and blankets in lieu of chairs, the glades became cluttered with wagons and saddle horses. Shouts rang from the river as canoes beached 
and the children tumbled off them out into the whooping and chasing through the fir grove and over the glades. Men slapped each other on the back, reminisced about the plains and the snake crossing, talked crops and plans and bushels to the acre. Women swapped bread recipes and croup recipes and rose slips until Jim was ready to cut loose and run. Johnny kept pulling him forward to shake hands with somebody, then turning to somebody else and leaving Jim surrounded by stairs. Jim stood it about half an hour, then disappeared. Rutledge discovered him a little later, lurking on the farthest outskirts of the crowd, prowling nervously between woods and river, and keeping a sharp eye on Moki, who was as jumpy as he was. Why, son? I was wondering where you'd go to, the man said kindly. No need to be shy of these folks, you know. Make too thunder and much racket, mumbled Jim. Rutledge laughed. They're might noisy, I'll give you that. This is the first time we've been together since the Dows, and there's a lot to catch up on. A lot to celebrate, too. By golly, besides, there ain't no danger around here. These valley engines are friendly. Folks are safe when there's this many of them together. Safe? Why? I feel safer when there ain't a boar's way within twenty mile. Look there what Johnny's fixing to do now. Why, he's going to give us a tune or two, Rutledge spoke reminiscently. Don't know how we would have made across the prairies without that youngster and his banjo. We had some mighty fine times around the fire at night, with the wagons drawn him close. He ambled away a moment later, but Jim didn't notice. He was too busy watching Johnny perched on the tailpiece of a wagon, with one knee cocked up and a banjo slammed across his tough, lean body. He was laughing, and the curling black lock that always fell over his forehead jiggled in time to the melody he was plucking from the strings. Jim caught only a few notes through the fresh wave of merriment that rose as Ned Rutledge drew Sally to her feet, called out something to the crowd that was gathering in a laughing, clapping circle around him. In an instant, three more couples were in the center of the circle, and a dance had started. The gayest, more rock-like and dance Jim had ever seen. The heavy-booted men suddenly found a lusty grace, stamping and pivoting and swinging their partners in response to the orders Johnny was chanting as he strummed out the music. The watchers clapped and roared encouragement. The dancers circled and spun, crossed and recrossed and wove in and out, the women's skirts swirling like open flowers, the patterns of movements flashing swift, intricate, but always coming out just right. Jim had forgotten all about watching for danger. His rifle trailed useless from his hand, and his ears were full of banjo. Johnny's medicine was powerful indeed, for it could make folks forget the miles ahead and miles behind, forget trouble and a strange land and loneliness, at least for a while. With a final whirl, the dance broke up into a flurry of laughter and panting people. New squares formed, and Jim, absorbed in the rhythms of a different tune, did not see Sally detach herself from the chattering group and start in his direction. She was within a few yards of him before he noticed her. Her cheeks were flushed and her, her eyes bright. James, come dance with us. Me? He took an involuntary step backward. No, I, I, no. It's fun, I'll teach you. I will, James. She hesitated, then moved forward to him tentatively and stretched out one hand. Her first gesture across the invisible smile. You're just standing here alone anyway. 
He longed to grasp the slim hand held out to him. Let it draw him into that charmed circle where the others lived. Could he? Then a fresh burst of merriment from the dance brought him all his shyness back. He turned and fled through the trees, plunging deeper and deeper into the tangle of oak and wild plum and hazel until both music and laughter had faded. And there came to his ears only the small secret noises he knew and trusted. The whir of a wing, the crow's call, the wind. Let them go on and dance. He wasn't going back there and be stared at. Let them all crowd around Johnny. He stayed away, prowling aimlessly among the trees or hurling pebbles in the dark, clear river until the night dropped down and he knew the last wagon would be gone. And the next morning, spotting the Rutledge twins paddling across the bursting to talk it all over with Sally, he abruptly went off hunting. Jim spent most of his time hunting those first few weeks, but even as he rode through virgin forests and along the banks of wild little streams, he could hear the ring of axes, the distant shouts of men to their oxen from the other claims around about. In spite of himself, he grew more and more curious about the bourgeois and their ideas, their hard-bitten, good-humored faces, their ceaseless labors. Why did they want to fight this good country so? Why did they insist on growing wheat and raising potatoes when they could fill their stew pots every day in the year from streams and woods? Why must they mark off a tiny space of ground and chain themselves to it when they could have uh, had a thousand miles to wander in? He could not quite put down the queer fascination he felt for these people's clothes and belongings. He would lurk in the trees surrounding a new-built cabin, watching a man sharpening a plow or uncrating a massive sideboard or a sunbonneted woman unpacking cups and plates and pewter spoons. Then he would ride slowly onto his deer tracking. One day it was a smell that he stirred it, that stirred him. He had made his kill a good young buck and was riding home at his leisure, eating a chunk of warm, raw liver off the point of his knife, with Moki trotting alongside and the laden mule clopping behind. He had just splashed across the stream that bordered the mill's claim when an enticing, oddly familiar odor drifted to his nostrils. What was that? Something from long ago. He left the animals in a thicket and crept forward. Through the trees he could see the mill's half-finished cabin and the cook fire that smoldered near a battered wagon. He watched a woman take a steaming skillet from the ashes, then unbearably attracted by that half-remembered fragrance, he left the trees and moved across the clearing, still chewing the last of the liver. He had no thought of sneaking up on her, but his moccasins made no sound, and when she turned she found a feathered Indian at her elbow. His face, hands, and carelessly held knife smeared with blood. She dropped the skillet and let out a screech that frightened Jim fully as much as he had frightened her. What the Sam Hill? gasped Mr. Wills, stumbling around the corner of the cabin. He stiffened at the sight of, of Jim, then suddenly relaxed. Oh, Lordy, it's Johnny Keith's brother. Uh, what'd you want, son? It's all right. Uh, Martha, will you hush? Nobody's going to scalp you. Jim spoke warily. What, what's in that skillet uh, there? In the skillet? Why, that's whole cake. Good jumping, Jiminy, boy. 
Look at the blood on you. What you been doing? Just eating. Mill's wife edged rapidly toward the cabin, motioning back her children, who had appeared from all directions. For the land's sake, Ben, give him some hoe cake if that's what he wants. Give him anything. Jim rode homeward, wondering angrily if they thought he'd been eating bourgeois babies. Johnny Keith's brother. He'd never yet walked into the post at Willamette Falls without hearing that phrase, without feeling curious or doubtful or suspicious eyes following him down the room. Don't worry about it, Jim, Johnny always advised when he complained about it. They don't trust you because they don't know you yet. And they've heard a lot of tales about you keep wolves for pets and held up a traitor at the Dow's with a knife at his throat and Johnny's white grin would flash. I do my best to squash all that fool talk, but the talk, the truth is, I don't know you very well myself. Would they ever get to know each other, Jim wondered. He often caught Johnny studying him as they sat around the supper at night, staring at his necklace or at his braids or his scars as if trying to penetrate the barrier of those nine years by sheer willpower. Jim did his share of watching and puzzling, too, wishing he knew how to make medicine like Johnny made it, with a warm smile, a banjo, a pair of candid, steady black eyes. Johnny didn't know how to trap or steal a horse or even read a sign. But there was never a man who didn't like and trust him on sight. When Jim reached home with the tale of his bloody hands and Miss Will's reaction, Jonathan laughed until he shook, but then grew more thoughtful. That'll go rounds, he said. Why don't you steer clear of other folks for a while, Jim? I could sure use you here. He jerked a thumb toward the meat rack, now dark with much smoking, and the fresh-killed buck and the numerous pegged hides. Ain't you about through with that job by now? Them hides? No, they got some uh, some sun, some more sun than twisted. I mean the hunting. Jim looked at him in surprise. Why, thunder, Johnny, you, you never did, don't, never get tired through hunting. No more than you get through eating. Well, sure, but we got enough meat to last a good while. We can always get squirrels or fish to fill in. Seems to me the important thing right now is to get our cabin up. With you and me both, logging. You mean you want me to start chopping trees, right? Yeah. Anything wrong with that? No admitted Jim glumly. But looky here, splushing we chop all these trees, sweat a couple weeks more to get this cabin built, and then we want to move on. We can't fold up no cabin and take it with us. Move on? Good Lord Almighty, who wants to do any more moving? I had a belly full of that last summer. He came around the fire and dropped down beside Jim. Why, this is home. It's what we came all this way to get. Now we got it. We can take root, like one of them old fir trees. Don't you get that feeling, Jim? Look yonder at the glades. We'll have them knee-deep in grain by summertime. And a kitchen garden by the woods there, and smoke coming from our own chimney. This place is ours, Jim. Soon as the surveyor's been around, and you sign that claim, 640 acres of it debt-free. Man, I ain't doing no more moving. I'll tell you that, we're staying put. Jim listened dubiously, envying the glow on his brother's dark face. 
I'll help you, Johnny, he said finally. I'll start logging tomorrow.